Welcome to Radical Simple Living Podcast, Episode 12. That's of Series 1. Um, pleased to welcome you back, or if you're a first-time listener, uh, pleased to welcome you. The English language is a big one. Uh, all of us that use it uh, know this because we can come up with lots of words to mean pretty close to the same thing. Now, I did some research, and when nowadays somebody tells you they've done some research, what they really mean is they spent 20 minutes on Google having a look. And I did just that to see which is the biggest language on earth. And I, I'm afraid to say nobody knows. Some people believe it is English. Some people believe it is Korean. Um, we can tell which word has which language has the most words in its dictionary, but that isn't the same thing as saying which is the biggest language. Finnish is pretty amazingly large, actually, because you can compound words and make up a new word and it exists almost. And Portuguese is very large too, as is Italian. But there is no definitive guide to which language is the biggest, but we do know some of them are pretty big and English is one of those and the reason English is so big a language is easy because England which is where the language came from originally although now it's a world language I understand that England was invaded by lots of other people um, uh, it was invaded obviously first of all by Celts that came there originally um, it was later invaded by the Romans who came and imposed a lot of their language on the on the people that lived there. It was invaded by the Saxons and the Angles. Um, it was invaded later on by Vikings and by Normans and then by the Dutch. Lots of people don't know the Dutch invaded Britain, but um, I have it on good authority that in the Glorious Revolution, uh, when William of Orange came to uh, join his wife on the throne of England, as a percentage of the population, more Dutch people came to England than Normans who came to England in the Norman Conquest. And there's a surprising number of Dutch words there. And, and then the English did something different, not content to stay in their own island. They went and invaded lots of other places, most notably of which was... India and unlike most invasions when we were able to impose our language on the people that were being invaded quite a few Hindi words came back into Britain a large number in actual fact so English is this great hodgepodge of different languages mixed together and that means when we want to describe something we have lots of ways of doing it now Originally, this, this podcast was going to focus on skills that people used to have, but don't have any longer. Now, I wouldn't say they were forgotten skills, because some people can still do them, but they're forgotten by the vast majority of us. And if we take, for instance, knitting... I know lots of people knit out there and it's wonderful and I fully support them. There's nothing nicer than making your own clothes by knitting them. 
it's relaxing, it's wonderful, you can multitask by listening to a podcast like this, why you knit if you like, perhaps some of you are, I don't know. Um, but the important thing about knitting is once upon a time, almost everybody could knit. Now, when I say everybody, I mean nearly every woman could knit, but some men knitted too. Knitting was very popular among sailors who went to sea for months or years on end, and they would do knitting while they're away. So knitting was once a universal skill, and now large numbers of people have never knitted. Now, I can remember my mother knitting and my mother teaching my sister how to knit. She even had a go at teaching me how to knit, but I'm afraid her patience run out very soon indeed. I think it ran out with this thing where you had to stand with your arms out with wool on them while she rolled a ball of wool. And, and, and it, it would seem impossible to do things wrong if you're doing that, but I... I managed to do lots of things wrong while I was doing it, so I was soon sacked from that position. But we know nearly every woman would have knitted at the time. In Victorian times, rich women, poor women, all kinds of women knitted. Nowadays, knitting is considered a hobby by many, and as a hobby, it's something some people do, but not everybody does. Now, a similar thing could have been said for carpentry. When I was a boy, almost all men, it was very sexist in those days, you know, if you wanted to be a female carpenter or indeed a male knitter, you would have uh, had a struggle on your hands to break down the conventions that operated. And I'm glad to say nowadays we're much more open to people doing what they want to do than they were in those days. But most men could do some carpentry. Some of them were better than others, but almost every man would have had the ability to make things out of wood. And nowadays, like knitting, carpentry is considered a hobby, and some people do it and do it wonderfully and make all manner of wonderful things. But the majority of men today, and again, I haven't measured this, this is me observing rather than measuring, the majority of men today don't have much to do with woodwork, although many still do and many women do too. So initially I wanted to call this podcast something to do with heritage skills. These skills that have been developed over hundreds of years which rightly are our heritage. They're not something that you know we're not entitled to develop. They have been polished and developed and they work very well. The rules of knitting were laid down hundreds of years ago. A method of notation, i.e. the knitting pattern, was developed a long time ago and people are able to do it and use it. And technically, although I don't know if this is possible, you can still find an old knitting pattern going back to the end of the 19th century and know how to use it. If I'm wrong on that, please let me know, but I think you can. So, the idea of heritage skills comes in. But then there are other words that people would use there, wouldn't they? They would say old-fashioned. They would say traditional. And the word old-fashioned has all sorts of connotations, doesn't it? If somebody says, that's an old-fashioned shirt you're wearing, or your living room looks very old-fashioned, it could be said in a very pleasant way, that, oh, you've tried hard to 
yeah, wear something vintage or or do your home up and decorate it in a way that looks as though it belongs to another age. There's a little bit of sneeriness in the word old-fashioned, so I don't like it. And the same thing goes for traditional, because if I say traditional skills, a lot of people hook into the word tradition and put all sorts of meanings to it that aren't really there. It, it can be quite a reactionary word, tradition, isn't it? I be- If somebody says to you, I believe in traditional values, you worry a little bit that what they're really saying is they don't hold with all the social reforms that have taken place in the past 50, 60 years and they would sooner go back to a a less tolerant time. So we have to be careful of using the word traditional. So I'm going to stick with this word heritage because I believe these skills are our heritage They have been developed over a long period of time and we have a right to claim them. We have a right to claim skills as part of our heritage of being a human. Just like we claim language to be part of our heritage. Nobody's ever had a child and decided they shouldn't learn any language. We need language to communicate and we need skills too. And just as we don't invent language, we inherit it. We don't invent skills we inherit them as well. Now, some of you will be asking yourself, why should we bother with these old skills? Because we don't need them anymore. We don't actually need anyone to knit anymore because we have machines that can knit. There can be a factory somewhere that can knit a jumper, a sweater, I should say, for North American listeners. Um, Why do we need to learn how to do it and the same with carpentry you say well there's perfectly good furniture factories where everything is mechanized and the dovetail joints are all cut by a big machine and they're glued together on a production line and off at the end comes a bit of furniture what is the point of learning how to make that yourself you don't have to and I think that that view is a little bit dated if I might say so and if you hold that view I'm sorry if I'm insulting you, but I am. Because I'm saying we live in a more enlightened age now and we realise that all skills are important because we never know when we might need them. Now, when I was growing up, I think I was growing up at a time in the 20th century where skills were being thrown away because nobody thought they were needed anymore. So if I do a little bit of an experiment in my life, and you can do the same thing for your life, it's relating what I do, what my parents did, and what my grandparents did. And uh, let's start off in the kitchen, if we can. I make my own bread. I make sourdough bread. I like it. I like making it. I think it's good for me. I think it's good for my children. And uh, it's a wonderful thing, sourdough bread. I I love getting my sourdough starter bubbling away. It's fine. My grandparents, I only knew three of my grandparents. My father's mother, my my paternal grandmother that would have been, died when he was four. So I only knew three grandparents growing up. But I can tell you, grandparents baked their own bread. My mother tells me that her house bread was made on Monday. It was wonderful on Monday. 
it was fine on Tuesday, it was okay on Wednesday, it was a bit dry on Thursday, it was awful on Friday, and so on through the week. Um, but that's how it was done. I know some bigger households may have baked loaf of bread daily, and that would have been not uncommon at all. My parents didn't break, didn't bake their own bread. My grandparents did, my parents didn't. I grow in my back garden all kinds of vegetables, as many as I can grow. I certainly want to grow beetroot and carrots and parsnips and potatoes and beans and cabbages and lettuce and spinach and all kinds of exciting vegetables too, some of which my uh, grandparents wouldn't have known. Um, my parents did do some vegetable growing. They grew some runner beans and some that's string beans in North America, I think, and some tomatoes, but not much. They didn't have the rows and rows and rows of carrots and beetroot and parsnips that I grow. If I want to see that, I'd have to go back to my grandparents. My grandparents did grow vegetables in large numbers. They were very serious about their vegetable growing. They had to do it. By the time it got to my parents, it had become a bit of a thing you do. You grow a few tomatoes, that's fine. But with me, it's serious business again. So what I'm doing is A, saying I'm skipping a generation in, in what we deem to be important, but I'm also saying that I'm keeping some of those old heritage skills alive, the skills of doing things. Take burning a fire. I'm sitting here, I can look now, and there's a wonderful wood-burning stove with logs in it that I brought in earlier on today, and they're burning and they're making the, the house lovely and warm. My grandparents did exactly the same thing. My parents didn't. My parents couldn't wait to convert their house to gas fires and electric fires and all kinds of things like that. So again, we see this reversion. Now, you might be saying that I'm unusual in that I do these heritage things, but I don't think I am so unusual. I think people do recognise the environmental benefits of doing things the old way. Not the old-fashioned way, but the old way. Now, why is there any benefit? Well, I usually, when I put these podcasts out, I normally do a little um, promotional post for social media, which I put out on Mastodon and on Twitter uh, and on Facebook. I don't know why I put it on Twitter. I'm wasting my time. But there we go. The, 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 the Twitter post never gets to be seen by anybody, but... It can't be helped. And when I was searching through for a picture, I was thinking through in my head what I wanted to talk about today. I was looking for a picture. I found a picture of a man that was taken in 1860. And this man was an ordinary agricultural worker. Uh, most photographs in 1860 were taken of fairly wealthy people. You get these very formal family groups all sitting around and looking rather austere. And that's what a, photo a photographer's business would have been about in the 1860s, taking family portraits. But some enterprising photographer took their camera out and started taking picture of agricultural workers. 
and we could look at them and sometimes these are rather unhappily used to mock aren't they vintage photographs are used because people look a bit strange in the clothes they're wearing and because they don't know how to look at cameras yet um, they sort of stare at the camera remember in those days you often had to wait while the shutter was open so you had to fix your face in a position that you knew you could hold for a short while and so that made your face look a little bit stern I think but this man from 1860 is facing me in the photograph now I don't know who this man was I don't know his name I don't know exactly what his job was he's holding a scythe so I suspect he was uh, an ordinary agricultural worker but he would have had skills that would have made us just look stupid imagine for one minute that something terrible happens and that the electricity goes off everywhere something, something that does happen here on a regular basis but uh, over a big area the electricity goes out we know that people in the Ukraine at the moment are suffering life without electricity which is hard um, it wouldn't have been hard for that man though would it because he never had it he didn't know what electricity was if the internet went down if all of a sudden some terrible thing happened and there was no internet and I couldn't upload any more podcasts and you couldn't listen to any more podcasts and you couldn't go on social media and you couldn't do your banking you couldn't pay your bills you couldn't communicate with people it would be disastrous if the internet went down people would find their lives incredibly uh, bleaker as a result and bearing in mind we've only had really the internet in those ways since the, what, the late 1980s to start off that's a very short period of time which would become very very dependent on it look at my photograph of a man from 1860 it wouldn't matter to him if the internet went off because he'd never had the internet he wouldn't know he'd never had internet he'd never had supermarkets he'd never had cars he'd never had central heating he'd never had telephones he'd never had any of those things but he had the skills necessary to live his life without these things and I'll mention this at the other point of some of you thinking I'm vaguely crackpot it would be stupid of us to become so dependent on what we have that we no longer know how to do things in the heritage manner we no longer know how to light a fire we no longer know how to write a letter we no longer know how to keep ourselves warm without central heating we no longer know how to communicate without a computer we've got to remember how to do things we've got to keep those old skills alive because we don't know when things are going to go wrong we don't know when things that we take for granted are going to be taken away and we don't know when something will happen that will stop us doing things the way we've always done them now if you doubt me on that and if you think I'm being a bit extreme in my views look at the lockdown that came with Covid in lockdown people were forced to do all sorts of things that they didn't expect to be doing they couldn't travel to places they could only go out for walks depends on the country you live in of course you had to socially distance in shops you had to restrict your visits outside 
People adapted, people could do them. A year before that, none of us were expecting COVID. None of us were expecting lockdown. None of us were expecting to have our freedom curtailed in that way. And things can happen in the future and we won't be expecting those either. We will not be expecting what's around the corner, but we're going to have to be able to cope with it. So what can we do to prepare ourselves? The answer is each and every one of us has a duty to make sure that we have a skill base that will be of use to us. We need to know if we've got a garden, we need to know how to grow vegetables. If we've got a kitchen, we need to know how to cook from scratch. If we've got tools in our garage or in our garden shed, we need to know how to use them. We need to know how to tie knots. We need to know how to tell the time if the clocks aren't working. We need to know almost everything. And if we fail to learn those things, we will be sorry because nobody will know how to do it. I'm reminded of that film of the H.G. Wells book. I've read the book, but the book isn't quite as graphic as the film is. Uh, the Time Machine. When the science... It's a good film, actually, the 1950s one. I'm not sure of the year. But the time machine is invented and this man goes back in time. So he stays in the same position as he's in, but he goes backwards. And then, then he goes forwards and all sorts of things happen. And eventually he comes across these people um, that are living, who are living a charmed life. They're playing on the beach and they're playing volleyball or something and they're eating fruit and they're having a good time. And our time traveller wanders into a building and finds a great library of books. And when he goes up to pick up those books, he finds they have turned to dust because nobody has used them. The knowledge that was in those books is no longer important. And because of that, people no longer know. They think that whatever is being provided, and it's being provided by terrible troglodytes. If you, if you watch the film, you'll know what happens. It's an awful thing. Now, we can't fall into the same trap as that. We can't let go of history. We've got to hang on to it. Now, how do we hang on to it? Well, you can attach yourself either physically or electronically via YouTube to people that know how to do things. People that know how to prune an apple tree. People that know how to um, take up a, a garment and to put a hem on it. People who know how to do a bit of simple plumbing. People that know how to build a compost heap. People that know all kinds of things. They're out there and if you take the trouble to look, you can, you can find them. Coppicing. Coppicing trees. That is uh, harvesting the wood from trees without killing them so the tree produces more wood. A wonderful skill. So that's one thing you can do. You can attach yourself physically to people by finding somebody who knows how to knit or knows how to crochet or knows how to do carpentry and begging them or pleading with them or paying them even in goods or money or whatever to teach you the skill. You can go to evening class, you can do all sorts of things or you can read old books. And the book was published in 1949. That's not an incredibly long time ago. It doesn't come from the far depths of history. One or two people listening to this might have been about in 1949. Certainly a lot of people's parents would have been around in 1949. 
and it's called Good Fruit Farming by C.R. Thompson. I've got it because I love buying old books and it tells me on the back that Mr. Thompson has a high reputation of one who knows with long acquaintance the practical side of his subjects. He has wide experience and includes the early training obtained at the fruit research. So obviously a wonderful chap, C.R. Thompson, which is why he was given the privilege of writing this book. And I want to read you a little bit that he says about coddling moth. Now coddling moth, as you know, is a little moth that lives on the ground and it climbs up an apple tree and lays its eggs uh, in the apple and they, be, they hatch out and become maggots. So when you go to bite into the apple, you find somebody is already eating it, the maggot. So not nice. But here's what he says. I'm quoting, spraying should be done with lead arsenate powder, two pounds per hundred gallon. The water, it is evident that the pest is an economic significance. The spraying could coincide with egg laying, but the period usually is between the end of June and early July. Mercurated lead arsenate at a similar rate to that for arsenate of lead may also be used by growers desirous of ridding themselves of this insect. Oh, there we have it. So when people look back, particularly now as we're so worried about the use of pesticides, and we might say, oh, once upon a time you could pick apples off the trees. They were wonderfully clean and good for you. We know that farmers way back to the early part of the 19th century were using compounds of mercury, compounds of arsenic, compounds of lead to spray fruit. Now, not only would that fruit have been eaten by people, and we all know that once heavy metals get into your body, it's very easy, but there's no easy way out. They're cumulative poisons. They build up in your body and do you great damage. We know not only would the lead, the arsenic, um, have stayed in your body and the mercury, but they would have stayed in the soil. They would have stayed in the apple tree because the apple tree doesn't have any weight. So year after year, these toxic compounds would have built up and people would have ingested them and who knows what harm they were doing. So just because something used to be done that way doesn't mean it's a good idea or it's safe. But there's no harm in looking with a modern eye and with modern knowledge and modern scholarship and being a bit selective about the information you choose to use and the information you choose to let go. So we can use old books and we can use old books to be able to help us hang on to these old skills. Now, we don't have to go back as far as the 1940s or older to find useful books. There's a, a book I've got here from 19... Well, uh, it, my edition says 1981. I have a feeling by the look of it that it actually dates from the 1970s. Um, it's called The Reader's Digest Back to Basics book. Now, the reason I mention this book, it's not a random book at all, is because once on a a page on Facebook, a woman asked a question and she said, what is the most reached for self-sufficiency book that everybody can name, please? So which book do you reach for first if you want to, if you've got some issues to do with self-sufficiency and you want some guidance on it? And I dutifully typed in John Seymour, um, 
complete guide to self-sufficiency. But people in America were putting down the name The Reader's Digest Back to Basics book. And it wasn't just one or two of them, about 200 people put that book down. So I thought I've got to get myself a copy of this and um, find out what it's all about. And I've got a copy here. And it is an extraordinary book because what somebody had done, presumably it was published in 1981, it was, it was through the 70s they'd taken the trouble to research all kinds of old-fashioned ways, I've used that old-fashioned word, I'm sorry, I should say heritage way, of finding out how to do things, like how to make a pair of moccasins from skin, how to lift a tree trunk using only uh, rope and a tripod, um, how to do all sorts of things with building things, with cooking things, with making things, with growing things, with harvesting things. It's a cornucopia of wonderful old skills. And some of those skills are so far lost. One of the I, I, I keep a copy of this um, in, in my bedroom bookcase, actually, because sometime at night I just like to look at the pictures in it. And one of the interesting things there is how to make a Davy Crockett hat out of a, a raccoon skin, which is, there we go. You can try it yourself if you have a copy of this book. So apart from YouTube and apart from talking to people that may have these skills, you can reach out to old books and I would recommend you build up a library of old books just to browse through, just so you know how to do things. Now, um, we have a problem, don't we? That we're in a time when as well as hanging on to those old skills, we also need new skills. You need skills to do with computing, you need skills to do with electricity, with machinery all the time. So we're probably living at a time when we need more skills than any other. And all I'm really saying in this podcast is that those heritage skills are so important that we have to hang on to them. Um, now, it, it reminds me that we are coming up to that time of year, it's, it's a week or so away, called Groundhog Day. And when anyone says Groundhog Day, they think of that film with Bill Murray in. It was also from the 1980s, I think. Um, I'll have to check on that, but I think it was. And we know in that film, the idea is the character, the Bill Murray character, wakes up every day and it's the same as it was the day before. And as you know, he's been sent by his television company to Philadelphia to, co to cover the groundhog being held up and see if it sees a shadow or not. Now, th this habit, this, this idea that you can use animals to foretell the next year's weather originally came from Germany, apparently, and early German settlers uh, brought the tradition to, to, to the States. In Germany, it was tradition to use a badger and you had to hold up a badger and you could tell if the badger could see a shadow if the badger couldn't. Now, when these German settlers got to North America, they realised that a North American badger would rid them of all their fingers and some of their facial features if you tried to pick them up. An incredibly vicious animal. So they stuck to the groundhog. The point of me saying this is... Groundhog Day doesn't happen. Every day when you wake up, the world has changed a little bit. The world has become a little bit more unstable. Some of those things that were certain are no longer certain. Some of those things that you expected to happen 
don't happen and some of those things you're dreading do happen. We've seen this in the last four or five years in terms of wars, we've seen it in terms of pandemic, we've seen it in terms of the disasters caused by global warming. There's a lot of advice on how to protect yourself in terms of doing this or doing that. What I'm saying is that the more skilled you are in basic everyday life skills that can help you do all kinds of jobs that you can't do otherwise, the better prepared you're going to be for when your alarm clock wakes you up. And when you have to wake up, it won't be Groundhog Day, it'll be a new day. That's my promise to you. Okay, it's been nice talking with you today. Um, I've, my tea's gone cold, I've been talking too much, but there we go. Uh, I hope to be back with you very soon with some more ideas about Radical Simple Living. Do remember, please, to subscribe wherever you listen and uh, keep listening. Come back next time. Bye now.